Welcome to Downstage Center, a presentation of XM Satellite Radio and the American Theater Wing. I'm John von Susten, Program Director of XM28 on Broadway. And I'm Howard Sherman, Executive Director of the American Theater Wing. Today, a Broadway star, also film star, television, famous family, Joanna Gleason, a Tony Award winner for Into the Woods, a nominee for Dirty Rotten Scandals, currently playing Muriel Eubanks in Dirty Rotten Scandal. Hi, Joanna. Hi, Welcome. John. Thank you. Hi, Howard. Welcome. That is such a fun show, Dirty Rotten Scandals, of course, based on that movie some years back. And uh, you play Muriel, the lady from Omaha. A, a character, a, a sort of composite uh-huh. character of several small parts that were in the movie. Uh-huh. Uh, a, a creation, almost an, an entire creation out of the brain of Jeffrey Lane and David Yazbek and the encouragement of Jack O'Brien. And then they got this sort of together and said, we're not sure what it's going to be. We haven't written it yet, but will you come and join us and be be in this musical? And I said, well, my God, yes. You know. Well, it's, it's, it's been years since I've seen the movie. So Muriel doesn't really exist as a character in the movie. Not right? this woman, so, no. So your character is kind of an original character that you could create then. Right. Well, yes, one helps create it. One, right. It's created right. for Well, it was you. written, yeah. but then you yeah. were able to interpret and create. Yeah, exactly. But you signed on to the show. I mean, if you sat down and watched the film, you'd say, well, these are all small parts. If I'm not playing Glenn Headley's role, what what am I doing? It was a total leap of faith. I mean, Jack, I've known for many, many years, and Jeffrey Lane and I had worked on a TV series together, the Bette Midler show, short-lived Bette Midler show. And when the Bette Midler show ended, and it ended uh, sort of with a whimper, and everybody was kind of singed, the plug was pulled on, it was altogether not a great experience. And though everybody left still in love, we just, it ended. I said to Jeffrey, what do you want to do? He said, I want to write a Broadway musical. And I said, yeah, okay. <laughs> yes, okay, fine. And, you know, and I'll join the Peace Corps. And he said, no, I want to write a Broadway musical. And I said, all right, well, then I want to be in it because I haven't been, you know, on stage since God knows when. So you sign on. The first time you get this script, and, of course, this is as you're going out, were you involved in the workshop? The second workshop in which there was not yet a fleshed-out role either. And you took this all on faith. Yeah. So how did the role grow, and what opportunity did you have to have input? Obviously, you had the relationship with Jeffrey. Tremendous. You know, and also you get to a certain age where you're just so old that you feel you can say anything you need to say. So what did you say? Especially to people who are your friends. I said, okay, so what do you see? And Jeffrey said, I think in a way, ironically, Muriel and Andre, the French chief of police, played so amazingly by Greg Jabara. I think they are the love story. I think there are two love stories. There's Freddie and Lawrence, these two guys, <laughs> right. you know, oddly enough. And then there's the chief of police and this woman, this American woman of great means and tremendous loneliness. And I think that that's the other love story in the piece. And I think it, it carries a little bit of the heart. There's, there is an arc to this that we will find, and, and we did find it. Well, we should say that the uh, Lawrence Jameson character is played by John Lithgow, and yes. the Freddie Benson is played by Norbert Leo Butts. It's not really a romantic love thing. It's uh, more of an you know, buddy, you know, buddy But it's, buddy it's, thing, it's yeah. similar to Matthew and Nathan, uh, the in characters the and the producers. I mean, you sense that the great love story really is between those well, two characters. Well, at the end, when you know that Freddie, who's never had an experience like this in his life, you know, John says, well, it's been swell, goodbye, and there's this little, you know, voice says, okay, meaning, you know, don't we get to do this some more and and sure enough Sherry Renee Scott's character comes back and the three of them you know head off into the sunset so as the characters being developed as you say you can say what you want was there material that was in it at one point that got lopped off or did it just continue to kind of grow as it went along coming from some, such a small point my fear was that she would be um, 
a crossover character whose scenes would just simply serve to get you to the next scene with the main characters, or that she would be something along the nature in the Marx Brothers movies. Who was that? Uh, Margaret Dumont. Yeah, it's Margaret Dumont. That she'd be the Margaret Dumont of oh, American tour. You know, it's this kind of thing that's good for one laugh and one laugh only, and that the laugh gets beaten to death through the night. And I thought, well, that's not for me. You, I, you don't need me to do that, and I don't need to, you know, come back after all these years. To, to wish that I to, to stand in the wings and watch everybody else have a better time, well, and, and and they understood what I meant. Well, your your character is certainly anything but. It's not a comic book character. It's a fleshed out full role. She's quite real, and she's yeah. quite deliciously funny. Now, and, was it written originally that way in the workshops, or did it evolve? No, as the it show? all happened in San Diego, and the rest of it happened uh, in previ- before we opened here. So how 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 did that role then evolve? Many dinners, many dinners with <laughs> Jeffrey Lane and a couple with David Yazbek, who at one point called me up and said, oh, "I'm stuck here and I don't know, and I have to write another opening, and I got a big number for John and Norbert, and I'll get to you." And you know, and sure enough. So did did you give input as to what you saw the character becoming? Yes, um, I I did, and. And I must say, Jeffrey Lane has been the most extraordinary writer with whom I've ever worked in this part of the process. Uh-huh. Um, not to say that Steve Sondheim wasn't also like this to a certain extent, but he was already well established. This, Jeff- this is Jeffrey Lane's first musical, you know, ever. Mm-hmm. Did you find yourself saying to Jeffrey at times, well, have you thought about this? Because it is a different form. He's obviously been very successful in the situation comedy form But he knows the he knows theater inside out. I mean, he knows theater inside out. I've talked out. with him. It's quite remarkable. Yeah, he does, it's he's not he's certainly been studying it and watching it Exactly. For a long it's time. an encyclopedic knowledge. And also, he is a very gifted and award-winning writer. And it almost doesn't matter what genre because talent will out. And this is an extremely intelligent man. And so he would... He would say things. He'd have a line or he'd have an idea or even if it was a couplet or or just a joke. And I would say, yes, absolutely. That sounds like where we're going. That's enough. That gives you a little bit of her story and a little bit of her take on life. Or there would be something that would just that wouldn't work. We'd we'd put it in and take it out down to a word here and a word there. We were constantly shifting. We we changed something not two weeks ago. Now, we'll talk more uh, about your work with Stephen Sondheim and Into the Woods. And certainly we're also going to talk more about uh, I Love My Wife and Cy Coleman, but those were writers who were more experienced and, and at, at that point they'd done a lot more shows and they already had their own particular musical idioms. David is still fairly new in writing on Broadway. Did you have the opportunity, did, was, he, was David writing for your voice and did you have the opportunity to shape the songs more than you might have working with those other artists? I, David had, let, let me say that David had a plateful with, with this. He had quite a lot to do. This is a show of uh, tr- tremendous musical numbers and and big arias and big pop songs and things. And he had written um, "What Was a Woman to Do?" That that I think may have existed in the first workshop. I'm not sure, but it it certainly was there for the second workshop. Not with these lyrics, but very very close. And so that was the one song I did have to sing, and it was it's the introductory song to to Muriel. The rest were a series of reprises in Act One of that, short reprises, and we had to figure out what those were, and those evolved out of rehearsal. Some One was cut because we didn't need to sing there. We just needed to cross over. And the number like this, like that, didn't happen until we just about opened in San Diego hmm. because we knew we needed a number with Andre and Muriel, and we weren't sure what. And I think Jeffrey Lane said, you know, it's as if 
we, we had the, we played with this idea, is she trying to teach him how to seduce her? And I said, no, I don't want her to be that, that canny, that wily. I want her to just be helping him, but all the time he knows what he's doing in the spirit of, come on, don't be hard on yourself. You know, I'm a woman alone. I can do these things. You can do this. You can just, you just need a moon and you need a thing. And oblivious to the fact that it is, you know, that she's going to be seduced. And it cannot look manipulative and it cannot look menacing and it cannot look premeditated. It has to be something that happens to the two of them while they're singing and dancing. And David found it. Well, for our listeners who have not seen the show, uh, Muriel, your character is being um, romance seduced, whatever, by John Lithgow's character at first. And Lithgow's, or Lawrence Jameson's, uh, henchman is Andre, the chief of police. And during the course of the show, Muriel, your character, and Andre become romantically involved. Mm-hmm. So that by the second act, where you do like this, like that, mm-hmm. which is the way he pronounces it, mm-hmm. you've already got a, a romance pretty well underway at that point, I mm-hmm. guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, to, to the, I think to the surprise of both of them. Mm-hmm. He, not believing that he could be cast in this light, having watched the great seducer, Lawrence Jameson, all this time, having watched from the sidelines, he says, I'm no prince, I just, I have no kingdom, I, I just live on its outskirts. And she, because she was not looking for it from a French chief of police, you know, she, mm-hmm. she did not expect that this man that she's run into several times during the night was going to be the one. Well, the song that is heard just before that is a comic song, Ruffhausen mit Schufhausen, which uh, Lithgow performs with a few of the others. How does the show then evolve into like this, like that? How do you get back to the romantic uh, storyline? I'm, I'm setting up to play the song. Oh, well, basically, the last time I saw John Lithgow's character, I thought he was the prince of Balahavula, and he, I had given him a great deal of money to go and spread the money around his troops and mm-hmm. fight or you know, whatever, or whatever she, she bought into mm-hmm. in exchange for feeling that she had had an affair with an incredibly dashing man. Uh, as she travels through Europe alone again, you know, and uh, at an age when she can probably not do this anymore, uh, starting next summer. And uh, when I come on stage, there's John, there's Sherry Renee Scott, who does not know him as the prince. She knows him as Dr. Schuffhausen of Vienna, here to cure Norbert Leo Butts, who is playing somebody named, you know, Freddy. Uh, and it's a whole, it's d- two canards at the same time, you know, a whole flock of ducks on the stage at the same time, uh, if you will. And in order not to blow the cover, John says to Andre, Lawrence says to Andre, get, get rid of her, keep her here. Keep her here while I get out of here. Just keep her here. So to stall me and to keep me from following the prince, Greg uh, tries to seduce me, and it's it's rather you know, flat-footed and lame, and that's how we get into the song. From Dirty Rotten Scandals, now playing at the Imperial Theater, Joanna Gleason, along with uh, Greg Jabara, as both Muriel and Andre, like this, like that. <laughs> it's both a comic number and romantic at the same time, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's wonderful. It even has an accordion solo in it. <laughs> or I guess that's an ocarina, or whatever that is. Yeah. What was surprising to me uh, was was preparing to come in and talk with you today is the fact that in terms of Broadway, this is your first Broadway appearance in almost 15 years. That's right. Now... There was television in there. There was raising of children. A bit of off-Broadway, but it, but it was the raising of children. That it was a lot of things. It was a lot of very personal things. Things I really needed to do. Things I needed to do for my life more than just increase the size of my resume. But since some people talk about doing eight shows a week like they're an athlete, 
that they have to gear up for. Mm-hmm. How is how is getting back to it? We should say you were off Broadway in I did the normal the heart normal last, heart year. last um, year, and I directed a show a few years prior to that at the Manhattan Class Company. So I've been back and forth to New York a few times. Well, Eileen Graff, with whom I starred in I Love My Wife back in 1977, came to see the show, and we were <laughs> in a car after the show, and we were very both very quiet. And she said, "Well, you know." When we were doing I Love My Wife, and we were 27 years old, 28 years old, the show was the thing you did at the end of your day. You had lunch. You saw friends. You went to the movies. You went shopping. And then we'd roll in. We'd throw on our stuff. And we now it is your day. You know? And I said, that's exactly right. It's your day. You have to get rehab on the knee, which is falling apart from the high heels. You have to you know, vocalize. You have to not go to loud places and smoke-filled rooms and air-conditioned places. And suddenly you start living like an orchid you know, in a, little, in a little terrarium. It's very difficult. And John and Norbert have you know, monumentally exhausting shows to do. And how they do eight shows a week is beyond me. Do you take class during the day to stay in shape, that sort of thing? Uh, voice. Just voice? Mm-hmm. Voice and then phys- you know, physical uh-huh. therapy. I mean, everything hurts. And then when you, you get done at about 10, 30, 11 o'clock when the curtain finally comes down, you must be all wound up. You can't just go home and go to sleep then. You must I go home, unwind. but very often we have people join us at home, and my husband really? makes pasta puttanesca, and we... Have a late, late dinner, mm-hmm. but th- now that could change because he's gonna—he's going into his own show. He That's may right. not be there w- having dinner with. He won't. For We're you gonna look at each done. other and say, "Well, I thought you made something." You know, he's, my husband Chris Sarandon is going to take over the role of the Italian father in uh, *Light in the Piazza*. Right, uh, right after Labor Day. Right after Labor Day, yeah. about the thirteenth of September. Right, right. Yeah. That should be uh, fun for him. I guess. Oh, it's he's such so a show. excited, and I haven't seen it yet, so I can't wait to you see haven't. it. You haven't? No, he comes home. He's seen it about five times. He said every night. There's another place where I well up with tears. He said, it's just the music is so glorious. It's one of those shows I think you have to see it more than once because at first you get just like an overview of it. And mm-hmm. then as you, I have only seen it once myself. But to come back to it, I imagine you'd see it a little bit differently each time. Yeah, I can't, there's so I much, can't There's so wait. many different layers to it. Same as with your show. I've seen your show twice. And the second time, I saw things I didn't see the first time, Dirty mm-hmm. Rotten Scoundrels. Mm-hmm. There's so many little things going on. Yeah. Since you brought it up, you mentioned Eileen Graff. Let's jump back now to your first Broadway show. I Love My Wife, which, when it premiered in 1977, many people remarked on how unusual it was to have that intimate a show on Broadway. This and was, yes. It the was performers a, were not well-known. No, 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 no big stars. I mean, Lenny Baker had certainly made name for himself in New York and James Naughton, and Eileen Graff had been in Greece, and, uh, and they, they had experience. It was my first, though. I, I came from out of the blue. And there were four actors and four musicians on stage, no orchestra. And this was, in its own way, quite revolutionary. And it was the sweetest, very funny, brilliant score by Cy Coleman, lyrics by Michael Stewart. And the show had a very rocky beginning, and we lost our first director, and then Gene Sachs came in with Anna White and saved the day. And, you know, on we went, and we did very well. Lenny won a Tony, and the show was a big, big hit. We opened one week, I think. Before Annie, and it's a good thing, because if Annie had opened first, we everything was blown, you know, out of town by that. You mean publicity wise, that sort of thing. Or? Everything. Yeah. Just Annie was a huge, huge roller mm-hmm. coaster hit, and it just a steamroller hit, and um, so we opened before them, which was good. And how was 
your first experience from Broadway. What was it like coming to Broadway for the first time now almost 30 years ago? Absolute dream come true, an absolute dream come true. And I walked around in a dream state for most of the 14 months that I was here. I lived a variety of places. You know how you, you don't really have a place, and you stay with your brother, and you stay with your brother's friend, and then you stay with another place. So I was constantly moving. Uh, and so I saw every part of New York City. I was down in the village on Greenwich and 12th, and I was on the upper 81st and, you know, and and, and Lexington. And then I, I was over on Broadway and 77. I lived everywhere in the city that 14 months, and I had the time of my life. They say a dream come true. You were born in Canada, but you went to Beverly Hills High School. You did shows in high school. Mm-hmm. When did you decide you wanted to be an actress, be on stage? I think when I was about 10 or 11. And what what made you decide that? My parents took me to the theater. Really? They took me. We were living in New Rochelle, New York, and uh-huh. they would take us into the city, and we would see musicals, and then they would buy the albums, and we would play. That's the music we had on in the house. Do, do you recall what the first show was you saw on Broadway? I think, if I recall, I think I saw Bye Bye Birdie, and I think I saw uh-huh. Gene Rayburn, and perhaps mm-hmm. uh, it wasn't Cheetah. It was. It, it was. Oh, oh! I can see her face. It's going to come to me, and I'll shout it out later. It was Gene Rayburn and. All right. It'll we'll look to forward me. to that. Just yes. at the <laughs> moment it comes to you, just stop whatever we're doing and yeah. tell us. C- kind of interesting. Gene yeah. Rayburn, a game show host. Your father, a game show yeah, host. Yeah, true. We should probably say your father, Monty Hall. Monty Hall, Come my dad. Come on down. Let's make a deal. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> I was working once at a uh, television station here in New York, and every day the chief engineer would close his door at noon or 1230, could not disturb him for half an hour. He had to watch Let's Make a Deal. <laughs> Every single day, no matter what was going on, the place could have been burning down. He watched your dad, and let's make a deal. Well, that certainly <laughs> is the, 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 the part of my dad's life that, that made him a household name. But it, it's really only a fraction of what his life is all about and was all about. So, But it raises something interesting because we often meet and talk with performers who are actors who were the children of actors. Your dad's fame came f- on a different route. He wasn't an actor. He was certainly a celebrity. He was nationally known. Um, but even at the point at which you'd gotten into the business, you'd already been married. You'd taken your husband's name. Mm-hmm. So there wasn't the same trading on your parents' celebrity. No, no. I mean, under people... the very large umbrella of the entertainment industry, we're both in the entertainment industry. But mine was certainly a very, very different. It know. doesn't open the doors the same way that no. that being the child of an actor does. No, not at all, nor does it give you the same uh, circle of friends. And mm-hmm. My son has grown up in the theater, you know, for his whole life, and should he decide to pursue it, which I think he, he, he has actually been approached to start pursuing it, then he knows a little bit more of the territory. You know, um, what my folks gave us was the most extraordinary family, and that, you know, I wouldn't trade for, you know, if Henry Fonda had been my father and that opened doors and I went and had that kind of career. I have this family with whom my mom and dad are alive and I'm extraordinarily close to them as my sister and brother are and we to each other. And that's the gift they, they gave us. So showbiz was not the milieu. It was not. We were not raised in a showbiz milieu. It's just what dad did. He became extraordinarily famous. He started off in radio. radio yes, yeah. he broadcast so in Canada. And he, when he came to New York, he would do the Rangers games. He, uh-huh. he, would, he had a show called Monitor, and he had uh, interview shows. And games came later uh-huh. as they presented themselves. Then he, and then he created one with his partner, Stefan Hadas. They created Let's Make a Deal, and that, that, that took off. Gretchen Weiler. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I told you. <laughs> and for those who just turned in, bye Joanna's bye mo- outburst is who she saw <laughs> in Tourette. the Cheetah Rivera's role in Bye Bye Birdie yes, she when was she fabulous. was younger. Yeah. Her first Broadway show. Now, 
very often people think of you exclusively, oddly enough, for the musicals, the the big musicals, because in each, roughly each decade, it seems, you yeah. come along yeah. in a big musical. I love my wife to start. But there's the dramatic side that that's always been there. In fact, your next several Broadway shows were non-musical roles. Right, you right. were in that fantastic revival of Joe Egg oh, that, uh, that, that Roundabout so, produced that was so much fun. in 85. Right. Um, and at that point, again, because we're looking between these shows, and there are these gaps that it was 77 that you did I Love My Wife. Right. You were a replacement in The Real Thing about seven years later and then quickly went into, into Joe Egg. Yeah. Had there been a lot of other stage work in there, or was it going back and forth? There was stage work work in Los Angeles. There were some some tours. There was a regional theater, the Arizona Civic Theater. I was I was there. Um, There were (laughs) I toured around with a revival of Charlie's Aunt with the Vincent Price and Coral Brown and Roddy McDowell and Annie Potts. Wow, that was a summer (laughs) to remember. (laughs) That was a summer. How old were you at the time? I was 26 Uh at the time. It was hilarious. The production was, as some of these tours are, borderline cheesy costumes and sets. And and you could not have been in better company with the most elegant, hilarious Roddy and Vincent and Coral. It's like you were saying before, there was one of the things where your whole day was having fun, and then you had to do the show at night? Yes, and then we'd all go out afterwards. Uh We we were young enough to go out and eat club sandwiches and drink, you know, and the constitution of of oxen, you know, (laughs) back then. And and it was great. And we we saw some cities that were fabulous and some cities that were, had seen better days. And it was a really interesting time. Mm -hmm. Let's go back to um, I Love My Wife. I like to play a song from it. It's a very interesting score. And there's one song that uh, I especially like, Lovers on Christmas Eve. Me too. Yeah. How how does that uh, song work in the show? It is uh, Christmas Eve, and mm-hmm. we are, my husband James Naughton and I are inviting Eileen Graff and Lenny Baker over for Christmas, for, for a, a dinner, but at the same time thinking that this will be the night when all four of us go to bed together. <laughs> I mean, it sounds much racier than Perhaps it we should time. have you tell people exactly <laughs> what I Love My Wife was about. It sort of, it, it, it toyed with the notion of wife swapping, and, and it, yet it was the most G-rated, you know, we all ended up getting into bed together with various, you know, teddies and camisoles. Well, G-rated and, until, as you said, Annie came along a week later. Then suddenly you weren't quite as G-rated. <laughs> well, we, we right, exactly. Uh, you can't win with with orphans and dogs. And then, But we all ended up getting into bed together and eating, you know, pie, eating Boston cream pie <laughs> a, instead of making love to each other because we didn't want to. Mm-hmm. Because you know we wanted to be with our own spouses, and so it was it was tame. It was adorable, and it was just slightly provocative, and uh, basically uh, a fantastic score. From "I Love My Wife," "Lovers on Christmas Eve," Cy Coleman's music, Michael Stewart's lyrics, Joanna Gleason, XM Twenty Eight on Broadway, Downstage Center. We're talking with Joanna, who currently is starring in "Dirty Rotten Scoundrels." Some years back, Stephen Sondheim, Into the Woods, you played the baker's wife in that. Mm. What was it like working with Steve Sondheim? I, I ask that because you and I first met at the uh, Walter Wall Stephen Sondheim that we did right. on this channel right. oh, four or five months ago. Right. And you told me some little anecdotes about Steve back then. He's, you know, it was, once again, I, I may not have the longest bio, you know, in the uh-huh. playbill, 
But I certainly, as I read it over, I went, "Wow, <laughs> you know, look where I've been. Mm-hmm. This is like, this is good enough." Well, to to, to to win a Tony Award in a Stephen Sondheim show, that's yeah, not that, too bad. No, that that's sort have of on your, on your bio, right? I mean, when you when you have stars in your eyes and you are a kid who, even at a young age, appreciates what it is Stephen Sondheim has given to the American musical theater, and you say, "If I could only get into one of those." And when I came back after I loved my wife and I went to California, I came back in the early '80s. And had done several shows off and on Broadway, and I got a call on my birthday, would you come and audition for Steve Sondheim and James Lapine and Paul Gemignani? They're doing a musical about fairy tales. That's as much as anybody knew. And I thought, well, but I'm not, they're not going to want me. I'm not one of those extraordinary voices that are here in the city. I'm not, and I'm not singular like Bernadette or or Patti LuPone or Betty Buckley. I mean, those to me, those those are iconic, one-of-a-kind voices, and also they're very, very gifted actresses. And I thought, well, I can sort of sing. I mean, I sing enough, but I don't know. They're not going to, and I sang for the audition, and I sang What Did I Have That I Don't Have, the only song that I could trot out and do. And then they said, do you have anything really, really fast and up-tempo? I said, no, but I can do this much faster. So we played at extraordinarily breakneck speed, and I did, and I made them laugh. And then they said, would you do the workshop with us? And it just sort of took off from there. Mm. And then I realized I was part of something. I had this feeling one night in San Diego where we were doing it at the Old Globe. I was standing behind the fake trees watching the two princes sing Agony, and I thought, I'm going to be in a hit I'm going to be in a hit Sondheim musical on Broadway. Oh, my God. I nearly passed out. I just had this dizzying moment of, wow, this is a hit. This is what it is. This is what it feels like. Wow. Have have, have been working with with Steve Sondheim himself. Wonderful. Just wonderful. Did did he give you input? Did he say, I wrote it this way? Once he said to me when I said, gee, this this duet with Chip Zion, it certainly is in his key. And he said, what's the problem? I said, well, it seems a little high. I'm not used to singing up there. He said, if you have a problem where the... He said, no, he said, I wrote this for your voice, first of all, which words I couldn't compute at the time, how wonderful that was. He said, I wrote this for your voice, and if you have a problem with it, go see a shrink. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, that was compassionate. So, or so, sense of humor. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I went, okay, okay. And I went home and, you know, of course, cried all night and thought about seeing a shrink. And then I thought, well, why don't you just sing the song? So I, you know, I went to a, a, a vocal coach and sang, got braver about opening up my voice. And the other one, another night, Steve called me at home and said, I'm writing your song in Act Two. Any thoughts? And I thought, What? <laughs> He asked you for input. Well, he had a little section. He said, Uh what are you thinking about at the time? What's the character thinking about? And I said, well, just this is ridiculous. I'm in the wrong story. And With that first bit when he said, I wrote it with your voice in mind. I wrote it for your voice, he said. And you felt it wasn't suitable for you. How how did you then have to work to... Well, he was right. If the notion was was that only pretty girls get to sing higher and in a kind of soprano and light voice and romantic things, then of course I had to go see a shrink and find out that it was okay, (laughs) you know, to disabuse yourself of the notion that you had to play Katasha in the Mikado for the rest of your life, which is where I started. Was there as much of a workshop process to that show? Now we hear about shows being workshopped endlessly. It did try out at the Old Globe, which is turning out to be a lucky theater for you, it's having ter- since, since certainly Dirty Rotten Scoundrels was there as well. Absolutely. Um, we did a workshop. We did a, a, a full sort of staged reading workshop at um, Playwrights Horizons. And how, again, did that show evolve? Did it Because, as you say, when he was writing... Was he? Were you in that workshop? You were in yeah. that. So was was the call about writing the second act while you were in the workshop? Were you no. already in San Diego? We it, were. We were here in rehearsal. I think we were here in rehearsal. 
Do you know I've lost the timeline because it's so long ago? Yeah, because it's an intricate yeah. show. Yeah. And, and might have been when we were in the workshop. You know, just how that developed because it really is – it's such a fascinating and, and all mm-hmm. of his pieces seem so complicated. Well, we had – we made changes. There were – there was a th- – uh, um, uh, Several midnights where the whole cast would come on, and there was a whole entire midnight cut when we were in previews here, uh, in the um, to to cut time out of the show. There was a song called "Boom Crunch," which was the witches' song, which was very funny in San Diego, but was replaced with a with a better one, uh, "The Last Midnight," that Bernadette got to really knock out of the park. Um, when the witch turns on everybody, there were some cast changes made. There a lot of things evolved, but you know you couldn't be in in the hands of two brighter men than James, Lapine and Steve. I mean, they certainly know their way around, you know, material. And the, and I believe you must go out of town. I was in a musical years later, Nick and Nora, which did not go out of town. And I think we suffered mightily because of that. You know, what's interesting is, as we're, as we're talking about the various shows, that people who see a Broadway show, certainly after opening night, as it, once the show is pretty well established, there's an altogether different show that's being done elsewhere in the country early on in the process that it changes so much from mm-hmm. the first workshops through the out of town tryouts the, the various changes that are made that's kind of like a become a standard thing with just about any Broadway show I guess it must be as an actress somebody who's involved in the creative process very exciting for you to be part of that that whole process it's thrilling and and basically I've done things that have been new uh-huh. That's I'm very proud of that. As opposed to revival, mm-hmm. or or you've gone in as a replacement, right? Taking over somebody else's role, you've gotten to create some characters, right? Well, you bring up Nick and Nora, so I do want to ask. It certainly was was a high profile show that that didn't really succeed, and what in the chemistry of that show? Where did you did you feel there were problems with the show going along? Because sometimes you hear of people saying, you know, we thought we were in great shape. Or was it a show that the process was ever, problematic? It was a problematic process. There, there were a lot of things. It was a very uh, dense plot, uh, book-wise. Uh, there were um, disagreements as to what the musical numbers should be. There was dissension in the ranks, uh, all the way producerial, composer, you know, uh, uh, librettist, uh, and it, it it was just, it couldn't find its footing. It couldn't get all the wheels on the track. And more talent in that group, you know, cast and creatively than just than anything. And yet it it suffered for a lot of very, very small reasons, and it also suffered for another larger reason. And I was not strong enough or smart enough at the time and had no perspective and couldn't see it when the original idea came to me um, to do it. The problem is when you call something Nick and Nora and you literally name who we know to be William Powell and Myrna Loy, you cannot banish mm-hmm. the the essence of those two people with any two actors. For our younger listeners, the Thin Man series mm-hmm. of movies back in, I guess, the 30s. Yeah. If it had been more veiled, if it had been in the genre of and <clears throat> not attempted to be <clears throat> pardon me, exactly them, I don't know. And still the things needed to be weeded and you know, and fixed. There, it it maybe could have worked. It did not. It was not dreadful, but it didn't work. It was not dreadful. <laughs> well, but that doesn't go in the quote ads. Yeah. But you know, you're you're talking very intelligently about the process of a show, and I believe you mentioned it earlier. You yourself have been directing mm-hmm. on stage and some television work. Mm-hmm. 
Is that as fulfilling to you as a performer? Does it use a different set of tools for you? It uses absolutely everything you know, starting with how to get along with people because everybody has a job to do. And as an actor, you sometimes forget everybody else involved in making it possible for the curtain to go up. But as a director, you remember that everybody is functioning at the top of their capacity to make something happen for you and your vision of what's going on here. And so you learn how to turn it over to those who have these great talents and just step back and say, show me what you got. And they do. And people, I thrive in an environment where a director assumes everybody's going to bring something great to the table. And then you find out that everybody can. Um, There's no one vision that makes the curtain go up. And, of course, if these people are not all working at the top of their capacity, it's up to the director to get them to do that, to yeah. to have them work better and together and whatever. You can do it. And if yeah. you've ever yeah. had kids, you know that you can get the best out of your kids. Yeah. There's a way to let them feel that they are endowed with the power to do that. So you must bring a, a good deal of your performing experience to the job then as a director, knowing what it's like to be the performer. Right. You're able to I enjoy to, it. Yeah. I enjoy directing. But conversely, then having done directing... Does that inform your work when you go back simply as a performer? It sure makes you want to open your mouth more mm-hmm. and say, wait a minute. Well, but wait, but how can you, but not, not aren't you, but you're forgetting, you know, and, and you just have to say, well, this is not the time and you don't do it in front of this person and you have to wait and there's a certain politics involved and you do it privately and, you know, and y- you have to be, you have to do your job as you have been requested to do. And then if you have other ideas or thoughts, find an appropriate way and an appropriate time. Maybe through a series of dinners like you talked about before. Dinners <laughs> and now email is very handy. Email now. Ooh, that's a good way to do it, I guess. <laughs> if you had to, if someone came to you and said, I want you to be involved in a project, you have your choice of directing it or acting in it, how would you make that decision? Which role to take? I'd read the material. The I'd read the material. Uh-huh. I, uh, there are things for which I'm not right, casting-wise. Uh-huh. And I'm smart enough to know those things that I should not be cast. So in. if you felt this role was written for me... But I'd really rather direct. How would you resolve that mental? I problem? would simply do that. <laughs> well, as we talk about this, I read an interview with you in the Christian Science Monitor, which talked about the number of times things are sent to you, and you read them, and you don't say no because you don't want to do the piece, mm-hmm. but you you self edit or or you start directing the piece by saying, "I wouldn't cast me in that." You wouldn't cast you. You know, I I I like to think that I have some range, and I think I can point to enough things that that certainly bespeak a, a certain you know range for I mentioned very briefly at the beginning that you also have a film and television career just to mention some of the films you've been in Hannah and her sisters crimes and misdemeanors heartburn boogie nights uh, fathers and sons mr. Holland's opus the wedding planner choosing roles does it matter to you as an actor, whether they be stage roles, film roles, television roles, because the craft is somewhat different, a live audience versus a camera. Yeah, I mean, their different demands are, are put uh-huh. on you, different requests, and you just have to go to work with a different headset, you know, f- for each of them. But basically, you do the same. You do the same thing. You, you try to be as honest as you can. I mean, you, you just tell the truth in character as much as you, you know, are allowed to. And... Um, you also have to realize what part of the uh, wagon train you're pulling. If you're not in the lead wagon, you know. <laughs> <laughs> do, do, do you have a preference, uh, live stage versus film work? Yeah, I prefer to be on stage. The, 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 the immediacy of it with the audience? I, the... I just think I feel smarter. Huh. 
I feel smarter and that I need to use more of what I've got. And it's also harder. And also there's a chip on my shoulder going, yeah, not everybody can do this. You know? <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, there's a, it's just it's a little more, you know. Um, I've seen a lot of people come to the theater, come to the stage because they feel that it's time to go do a play. And I say, all right, give it your best shot. You know, let's mm-hmm. see what you got. We've talked uh, very briefly about your husband, Chris Sarandon. What do the two of you and your family do for fun when you're not on stage, when you're not working? Well, we dance in the kitchen constantly. Do you really? Yeah, that's gotta constantly. Be a sight. We have a very, very large kitchen, <laughs> and uh, we dance. And uh, so that's and we cook. We're cooks. Really? Yeah. We Any cook. particular cuisine? Absolutely everything. Ah. Yeah, and the kids make Japanese food. I mean, down to the sushi and the rolls, and the, it's quite a culinary family. And who, who does the cooking? You mentioned that that he often cooks late night pasta. Yes, no, he's over. a phenomenally good cook, and, uh-huh. and I'm good, and the kids are good, yeah. and then we eat. Well, Joanna Gleason, currently in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels, thanks so much for being with us today My on pleasure. Downstage Center. Thank you. For the American Theatre Wing, I'm Howard Sherman, reminding all of our listeners that these programs and all of the education and media work of the American Theatre Wing is available for free, online, on demand, at our website, www.americantheaterwing.org. And for XM Satellite Radio, I'm John Von Susten. For Downstage Center, that's a wrap, and thank you. <laughs>